this is Luke 8, 44 and 45. So she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would help us to understand as a people that you are a God who reaches out and you touch us, that you bring us in, you heal us, you restore us, and that we in turn as a people should live under your great and your good authority that does bring that restoration, and that we would honor you in all things because you are so good. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we're in this series on Jesus' authority. This comes out of a thing called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, where they're amazed at his teaching and the authority with which he spoke. And this goes in then on Matthew 8 and 9, where Jesus goes to prove that authority by the things that he did. When the series will finish on Easter, and then the week after Easter, we're going to start a series called What in the World Part 2. What in the World Part 2 comes out of a series we did last year called What in the World Part... Well, yeah, numbers work like that, see? We all watch Sesame Street. We're good. So part one was where I looked at certain things in the Bible, and they make me go, hmm, that's interesting. So I thought you might want to know about that. So we brought those things together in part one, answered some questions, and I asked you to, ans to ask questions that we could then answer for you next year. Uh, we are going to do 16 different weeks for What in the World Part 2. Actually, 18 if you count Mother's Day and Father's Day, because we put some in there. And we're also going to have blogs online. In the end, we got over 30 What in the World questions from you. So apparently, you guys have a lot of questions. So we're going to answer all of those starting right after Easter. So we'll be looking at our blogs and things like that. We'll get all of that together. Uh, this is what I'm going to talk about today. It was originally in my What in the World Part 1 series. But then as I was out of the book of Luke, actually, then I was going through Matthew. I'm like, oh, those verses are there too. So I moved it here. But I still am going to deal with my What in the World question. Because I believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he knows us better than we know ourselves, that he is in command of every situation. I believe that he knows us better, as I said, than we know ourselves, but knows our thoughts, even though we don't utter them out loud. So why does Jesus, in the verse that I started with at the beginning when I had you stand, why does he ask who touched him? Does he not know? Is he Jesus less than we thought? Is there something that we're missing there? What in the world's going on? So today we're going to look at that question of Jesus seeming confusion and what it means, but we're also going to look at it in the broader context of Jesus' authority, uh, healing, restoration, redemption, cleanness, all of these things. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. What happens here is this woman who is healed, it's inside of another story that's taking place. It's like a dream inside a dream. We've all been inceptionized if that's even a word. Uh, so we're going to walk through this, and by the end you'll have a better idea of how to look at the scriptures and understand Jesus. Now, there are three things that I've told you before about faith, and we're going to come back to these things over the next three weeks. And this is, number one, our faith is only as valuable as the object of our faith. So you came in here this morning, and almost every single one of you sat down in a chair. You had faith that that chair was going to hold you up when you sat down in it, and your faith was vindicated. Yay! It would have been awkward if it wasn't. But you ever take like a lawn chair and it sits in the backyard all winter long and the sun beats on it and you're like, I'm going to, it's such a nice day, I'm going to go sit in that lawn chair and you go, boom, and right through it? Okay, a few of you. I, mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Try it. It's amazing. Right? Your faith is not vindicated. You ever, you ever go into a room and you're, and you're going to turn on a light switch. You have faith that the power is going to course through the switch and turn on the light and you click and, and either the light goes, poof, or, or nothing happens. Okay, two of you. My, you guys need to live in the real world. This happens to me all the time. It's like, i got a generator and LEDs. Well, you're a weirdo, so whatever. So, you ever tell somebody a secret, and, and you expect them to keep that, and all of a sudden it comes back to you through somebody else, 
right? You put your faith in that, and all of a sudden, right. Our, our faith is only as valuable as the object of our faith. And when our faith is in something other than Jesus, we will always be let down. Second thing, though, is our faith is imperfect. It isn't perfect. Anybody's faith ever perfect? No. It's why you have lucky socks or lucky T-shirts or lucky underwear. It's why you say good luck. It's why you still play the lotto. Weirdos, <laughs> because our faith isn't perfect. But lastly, God loves and heals despite of all of our imperfections. And what you'll see today is that we should grow up, we should strive to be a better people and all that, but God still comes through despite all of our imperfect faith. The verses we'll look at today continue to show Jesus' authority. Matthew has very concrete ways of how he moves his gospel forward to show this and the things that Jesus does. The same account, as I said, is also in Luke. Luke tells you at this point what we're going to look at is Jesus has come back from across the lake or a sea, and everyone's been looking for him, wondering where he went. So when he shows up, they're very happy because Jesus is on a a mission to teach and heal and love the unlovely and redeem and draw people back into relationship with him. The last thing he did in the gospel of Luke is something we looked at a few weeks ago in Matthew where Jesus heals this guy and casts out a demon. It's like an exorcism fit for Hollywood. It's like breaking chains and courses of demons and pigs running into the ocean and people being too afraid of Jesus and his power and they ask him to leave. It's all very, very dramatic. In Matthew, though, this takes place a few weeks ago in what we looked at, and Matthew kind of moves forward to where he's going to get to today. Because last week, we, or two weeks ago, we looked at God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Last week, God desires grace, not law. He longs to redeem and restore and make us new wineskins, born again, new creation. And what you see today is God's redemptive call in that where he restores a couple people back into relationship and life again. It's all moving forward. Matthew has a point in how he does this. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. While he, that's Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in. Now in Luke, this tells you this is a ruler in the synagogue. He would have been called what's known as a hazan. A hazan is someone who leads the liturgical part of services and songs and they sing. So it's kind of like Jason Hilton this morning. He's a, Just call him, hey, hazan, what's up? It'll work great. It's like a Michelle Gio in other weeks or Sean Jones in other weeks. It's kind of what they do. So a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. If you look at the Mark and the Luke account, it says that she was dying. This could mean that she had actually died, but the guy didn't want to believe it. Or even the word here for died, it means coming to an end, not necessarily an end. So it could also mean that she was on her deathbed. But this guy comes and he kneels before Jesus. And what it tells you is that this guy, who in the, in the Gospel of Luke, you realize his name is called Jairus. In Greek, that's Iarus, but I'm just going to say Jairus because I'm a white boy. I think it sounds better. Um, He believed that Jesus was a prophet, but he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God or God in the flesh. It's just, just a normal prophet. So he comes and he believed, but really not that deeply. But this also gives you insight into who Jesus is. Because in this culture, you went up to a rabbi and said, hey, could you lay your hands on my dying daughter? Almost every rabbi would have said no. You learn that this girl is actually 12 years old, so she's a minor, and in that culture, that made somebody worthless. She's a woman, a girl, so that means also in this culture, she's not worth very much. It's that culture, not this one, okay? So, and then she could have also died while Jesus was there as a rabbi that would make you unclean. So almost any rabbi would have said no, but Jesus gets up and he goes. It's also why Jairus kneels before him and asks him because he knows it's a big ask. But again, faith is only as valuable as the object of your faith. At this point, his faith is in Jesus. That's a good thing. Secondly, our faith is imperfect. The implications in all the gospel texts is that this is the last resort. 
Okay, it's not like it's not like the first choice this guy had was go to Jesus. It's the last resort. He doesn't really know. He's exhausted his other options, so that's not so good. And third, God loves and heals despite our imperfections. And you follow the story, see how this works out. Jesus goes to Jairus' house. On the way, he gets sidetracked, which for me brings me great comfort because I always get sidetracked. It's biblical. <laughs> Jesus and I are in the same boat. So if, I get, if I'm ever talking to you and I run off, just, oh, that's like Jesus. Okay, so there we go. I'm very biblical. Blame on my ADD. Verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, the text is making a connection here between this woman and Jairus' daughter. Um, the Gospel of Mark, he mentions this woman has suffered from many physicians. She has spent all the money she had trying to get better. Nobody could heal her. Now, I'm not trying to be vulgar, but it's very clear from the Greek text that this flow of blood is actually a form of menstruation. And the last thing any preacher ever wants to talk about from the pulpit is menstruation. Now, even just saying it probably offends some people in the room. Like, he just say period? Yes, he did. I brought my mom. She had you. She knows what it is. Okay, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. So let me just move on. So from what I've experienced as a man in a house with a woman, the monthly cycle is not a woman's favorite. Truer words have never been spoken, right? Yeah? Okay. Okay. So to understand this woman, you have to give you, understand this. Ladies, period. Every day, 12 years. Seriously, think about that. Gentlemen, <laughs> your wife has a period. Every day, 12 years. She's like, yeah, I would spend all my money to you because we're going to fix this. This is not happening. So she goes, she touches the fringe of his garment, verse 21, for, Jesus, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So again, faith is only as valuable as the object of your faith. Our faith is imperfect. Not that God has not given us doctors and you should go see the doctor. If you have had this issue for 12 years, please go see the doctor. And three, God loves and heals despite our imperfections. Now, I want to show you what the object of our faith looked like, so I need to walk you through some stuff. So keep your place in Matthew, but open up to the book of Numbers chapter 15. That's in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. Okay, Numbers chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 37, and I know I just got happy, really excited. You're thinking, oh, this is the tassels on garment passage. I'm waiting for Aaron to talk about this forever. You're on the edge of your seat. What? I know. I know. We're going to talk about the tassels on garment passage. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, Numbers 15, 37. I'm going to read this out actually out of the NIV. I think it flows a little better. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. So at this time, the Israelites are walking around in the wilderness. They're wearing a cloak or a shawl or a tunic or something like that. The bottoms of these things would have been round. And so God says, put tassels on the corners of your round garments, which I think God is totally messing with them. And it's really funny because it took them a thousand years to figure out how to actually do this. And note to self, not funny. And God's going, hee, hee, hee. And put, a cord, and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so he reminds them of his grace to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So for thousands of years, Jews who are Torah observant, would have worn prayer shawls, and to these they would have attached these tassels to. Originally it was a tunic, turns this thing called a prayer shawl. Now, here's a picture of one. Now, here's a picture of a guy wearing one at the wailing wall. 
So this is very important for what's actually going to take place in the text here. On the edge of this shawl, there would be, as I said, these tassels. The tassels would have five knots in them. Those five knots would represent the five books of the Torah. You had four spaces between the knots. Those four spaces would come to represent God's holy name, Yahweh, those four uh, letters there. The Torah has 613 commands in it, so each tassel was woven from 613 different threads. They would wrap these around their fingers when they would pray to show that God is a tactile God, that God is a God who understands touch. He understands that we as a people need reminders. And so part of the idea is when we are seduced, when we're running away after our own desires, when we think we know better than God what's good for our life, you have this tactile thing in your hands that would remind you that God's way is the right way. God's way is the better way. It's a physical reminder of God's grace. So in Jesus' day, when you went to the temple and you would go to pray in order to not be disturbed, you would take this prayer shell and you'd pull it over your head and you'd pull it tight so you wouldn't be distracted. And this would be called your prayer closet. In Matthew chapter 6, this could be even really what Jesus says when you go into your room to pray and you close the door. He wasn't literally talking about going into some room and closing the door. It's this, when you go to the place and you pray and you pull your prayer shawl around you. And so it's all this thing kind of, you're like, oh, it makes a lot more sense now, right? Because a lot of them didn't have doors on their closet, so how would that work? So the Jews wore these prayer shawls. When Jesus comes, he comes to fulfill the law. That means Jesus was a fully Torah observant Jew, so he would have worn a prayer shawl. A prayer shawl is called a tallit. The word for the borders of the garments on this prayer shawl is called a kanaf. And the word for tassel is the word tzitzit. So the tzitzits are attached to the kanaf on the tallit. If you go to the last book in the Old Testament, it's a book called Malachi. And Malachi, as a prophet, writes a few final words before God is silent for 400 years. He says many things, but a few of them are in reference to this coming Messiah. Okay, so in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, this is what he says. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise, and that is wording for the Messiah, with healing in its, and that's the same word for his, wings. Now in Hebrew, there isn't as many words as we have in English. So when you read a word, you go and find out where else that word is actually used. And you would see that the word here for wings is the word kanaf. It's the word kanaf. It's rings, rays, borders, that kind of thing around. And so this idea of what was around the prayer shawl. So this legend came to surround the prayer shawl. And they would say that when the Messiah actually came, when he showed up, there would even be healing in his kanaf. There would even be healing within his prayer shawl. So you go back to Matthew. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Why does she touch his prayer shawl? Why does she touch his arm or his hand or his foot? or something else. Why does she touch the fringe of his garment? Because she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what she believes. Our faith is as valuable as the object of our faith. Her faith was in the person of Jesus here, the Messiah. This isn't the only place this kind of thing happened either. There are other indications that people knew this. Matthew 14, 35, and 36, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This woman has tried everything in her life to get better. Nobody could help. And she goes to Jesus. And some people say, well, why? Why is Jesus her last resort? She had been bleeding for 12 years. He's only been on the scene for maybe one and a half at this point. So it's not her last resort. What you're meant to see is that her faith has a beginning. And it's right here. It is right here. John Calvin says, God deals kindly and gently with his people, accepts their faith, though imperfect and weak, and does not lay to their charge the faults and imperfections with which it is connected. 
beautiful words. It's also here that Matthew is showing you Jesus' authority. Matthew, Jesus heals, and he moves right on. But I want you to look at Luke, because this is going to give my what in the world question a little bit and help you understand more of what's actually taking place. In Luke 8.45, when this happens, Jesus stops and he goes, who was it that touched me? Now, people think that Jesus isn't being very godlike when he says that. You know, the, Jesus, there's a bunch of people around you. Probably everybody from the last mile has been touching you. I don't know what's going on with you. Who touched me? And it says this, when all denied it. So everybody's pressing up against him for the last mile. Who touched me? What me? I don't know. It's all like us. Like, we don't want to be in charge of anything. Peter said, Master, the crowds around you are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So Jesus clarifies, not because he doesn't know, but because we're the slow ones. We're the ones who are slow on the uptake. So he says, somebody touched me for other reasons. He knows this woman touched him for a purpose. So you've got to see what Jesus is doing here. This woman's disease, it would have made her unclean for 12 years. That means she's not supposed to touch anybody. So if she has kids, she's not allowed to hug her kids. She, if she was married, she might have lost her husband because you couldn't touch him for 12 years. You couldn't go to church or go to temple, which may not be that bad because apparently they're all very judgmental. <laughs> this disease has, has cost her everything, probably including her family. And just by touching Jesus, the crowd would have seen Jesus himself to be become unclean. Because, oh, no, now Jesus is unclean. Now, if you go through Matthew, you would see that Jesus has imparted his cleanness to other people. People don't make him unclean. He makes other people around him clean. But they don't know this. The crowd would have seen themselves as becoming unclean. Jesus could have remained silent and not brought any attention to it, and nobody would ever know, but he does. It says, when, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she's totally busted, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And I think it has every Everything to do with who she believed Jesus is. I, I, I touch this Kanaf because I believe he's the Messiah. And it says, and how he, she had been immediately healed. Now, some people think this is really mean. If Jesus knew this woman touched him, why point her out? Why not just pull her to the side and talk to her there? Why embarrass her in front of all these people? Because she had been an outcast. She'd been an outcast for 12 years. And the only way for her to be restored into community is for her healing to be witnessed. People must see it and understand what is going on. Her public confession of faith, her restoration, that is exactly why Jesus asked who touched him. Because he wants to restore her like he wants to restore us. And even though, like I said, she was healed, the crowd would have been horrified. This woman shouldn't have been in the crowd. She shouldn't have been anywhere near Jesus. And before the mob can get out of control at what's going on, verse 48, this is what Jesus says. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So you probably have all these people ready to just pick up stones and go after this lady, and Jesus shuts it all down. He says, you get to go in peace. When a rabbi said, go in peace, that has huge implications. She is healed physically, but Jesus would have used the word shalom as a rabbi. And this idea of shalom, we really don't have any English equivalent. It means the peace of God, but it means so much more. It takes a paragraph to even define what this word is. Shalom is overall health and wellness. It's physically harmony with God, spirit, soul, body, worries, fears, joys, hopes, laughter, pain, love, your whole being coming together, health and wholeness in your relationship with God, where your mind doesn't have to race. You don't have to be anxious about anything because you trust Jesus for everything. It's the calm from being in the right place, in the right time, in the right way, everything as it should be, the shalom, the peace of God. Jesus says to this woman, you get to go in shalom. Not just the physical healing of God, but the spiritual healing of God. I think this is what Jesus wants to bring us today. 
He wants to bring us restoration and redemption, God's peace into our lives because of what he has done. Many times Jesus doesn't heal physically because he wants to heal us more where our deeper wounds are. It's more than physical. It's spiritual. And if that's you today, where you have these deep spiritual wounds inside you, Jesus longs to heal and restore and bring you in. Now I'm going to jump back to the Jairus story. So Matthew 9, verse 23, because this all kind of goes together in what's taking place. So uh, Matthew 29, verse 23, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, and you don't understand what this means, so I'll explain it to you. In this culture, when somebody died, they got loud. Now, when we, someone dies in our culture, we get very quiet. We get very somber. It's like we sit in the corner and sob and don't really make a big scene. In this culture, when somebody died, it was like, this is not right. This is what sin is brought into the world. Death is our enemy. Rawr! And you want to get loud. You want to get really, really loud. You would hire professional mourners, professional mourners, to come when somebody died and they would scream really loud. So if you couldn't make it on American Idol because you're screechy and off tune and can't, you would be a great professional mourner. I'm going to have American Idol. You have like an American mourner. And you'd be like, whoa, you're perfect. Charge a premium because you're so horrible at singing. See? Some of you are like, that's my profession. That's where I need to go, right there. And so, you know, they, they'd hire these people. Like, I would have two. I'd have like my wife and my dog. That'd be it. Like, our mayor would have a couple hundred. Our governor would have like thousands on both sides. I'm like, eh, happy incident. I would be screaming at something. And so, but he shows up and there's all these mourners that, that this guy has hired. And so they're there and they're wailing. And part of it might be accusation, a little bitterness. Jesus, you got sidetracked. You didn't get here fast enough. What's going on with that? And when you read the other accounts in this, I think what you see is that the faith of this woman starts to be imparted to Jairus he starts to understand a little bit more who Jesus is as the Messiah. Because essentially, Jesus will say, I didn't get here because you didn't act fast enough. This is not how it works. I'm not here for, for get more power. I'm not here for your endorsement. What he tells Jairus is, you simply need to believe. Just believe. Trust me. Our faith is as valuable as the object of our faith. At this point, he's like, Jairus, you need to believe in me. But our faith is always imperfect. And this is why our God stands over and above our faith. And thirdly, God loves and heals despite our imperfections. Again, John Calvin says this. We are taught that we cannot go beyond bounds in believing because our faith, however large, will never embrace the hundredth part of divine goodness. Because God is simply that good. So verse 24. So Jesus says, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. So their response, oh, wow, Jesus said she's only sleeping. Oh, man, Jesus is amazing. This is great. This is awesome. Woo! No, what it says is, and they laughed at him because they were so sure they knew how the world worked and that Jesus didn't, and they're so like us because we think we know the exact way to do it, the exact way our life is supposed to go, how things are supposed to be, and Jesus is like, no, trust me. You're like, I'm not going to trust you. You don't know what you're doing. Jesus always knows what he is doing. He is meant to be the object of our faith. Jesus sends everybody out of the room, brings the mom and the dad and the disciples in, verse 25, but when the crowd's been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. In Luke 8, it says that taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. Craig Keener says, literally, on being called, her spirit obeyed the command of Christ. That is authority. What does Jesus do? He restores her to life and restores her to community. In Luke 8, Jesus will say, don't tell anybody what just happened. I don't, it's not because he doesn't want anybody to know, but I think just like the woman, he wants this girl restored to community. This little girl is never going to be restored to community by everybody going, oh, that's the zombie girl. It's never going to happen. So Jesus is like, you know, 
That was funny, wasn't it? No? So, so Jesus says, just keep it quiet, you know, and, and restore her into community and life. She's sleeping, send her out. She can re- go back into her life again. And I think he also does this so parents have a place of composure that can reflect upon the work of God, what he's done in their daughter's life, what he's done in their life, all they had witnessed that day from the woman all the way to their daughter. Because faith is only as valuable as the object of our faith. But our faith is always imperfect. But God loves and heals despite our imperfections. In the images of all these healing, we're supposed to realize that faith must be something that takes on flesh and blood. When we believe in Jesus, we begin to act and live a certain way. The ideas in the scriptures, they stop just being ideas. They start to be ways that we live in redemption and hope and life. They hold sway over us and how we interact with God and each other. That's faith. Faith is how we begin to act that out. And faith is only as valuable as our God. And so many of us have things in our lives that we put as the center as our God that are not Jesus, and they always let us down. Whether it's another person, whether it's a thing, whether it's an education, we have all these things that we place in the place of Jesus. And every single time, they will let us down. And this is why we understand that our faith is only as valuable as our God. Secondly, our faith, we are always imperfect, even when we love Jesus. We never fully, perfectly love Jesus. We trip and we fall. But thirdly, God loves and heals and restores and redeems and resets us in his time, in his way, despite our whining that he should do it our way. Can I say hashtag planting roots? We thought we are going to be able to hear it. may end up being somewhere else. Oh, my goodness. God is always right in what he does. This, there's this beautiful thing that happens in the Exodus story where you got the former Hebrew slaves, they're wandering in the wilderness, and it tells you that a, that a cloud followed them by day and a pillar of fire by night. It uses this word called Shekinah to talk about the glory of God that hovers over his people as they wander around in this desert. I think that's to remind us when we look at it that even when God's people forgot him, God still hovered over them, just like he still hovers over us today, over you. God's desire is that we, as his people, be healed and restored to community. He desires that we experience his shalom, his peace. We do that by coming under his authority, resting under his wings, under his kanaf, that he has spread it over us. But the truth is, if we're going to live in harmony with God, we live in harmony with God. God doesn't conform to us. We conform to him. Body, mind, soul, emotions, desires, every inch of our being comes into harmony with who he is. And guys, look, I don't know how strong your faith is or how weak your faith is or where it's imperfect, but I do know that God longs to heal you and restore you and bring you back in for the purpose of being part of his people and part of his body and part of his family. I don't know what needs to be healed in your life. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what you've searched for and how long that's been happening. Your struggle could be with singleness and loneliness. Your struggle could be with you're married and you still feel lonely. Your struggle could be with you're married and your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you struggle with broken issues of sexuality and you're trying to figure life out. Maybe you've lost someone, you feel alone. Maybe you've hurt somebody or somebody's hurt you. I will tell you this. It does not have to be the way that it is now. You can, even today, stand under the glory of God and allow him to heal your soul and your life and restore you. Regain this place where you begin to live and walk in the community of believers under his authority first. 
When I usually talk about prayer on Sunday mornings, it's after communion. When I say communion, people just shut down. So I'm going to talk to you about prayer a little bit right now. <laughs> okay? Do you know that every week we have people available to pray for you, to pray with you, to pray over you, to lay their hands on you, to be touch and tactile and words spoken to Jesus and hope? James 5, 13 and 14 says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He goes through the whole gamut of people and emotions. And usually this idea of sick, it refers to physical ailment, but it can also be, are you weary? Are you spent? Are you exhausted? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, when you feel that way, make some noise. Let people know. Don't stay silent, because together people will pray with you, and together with God, heal you. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus didn't just heal then. Jesus still heals our souls now, today. If you have never trusted Jesus with your life, that's the place where you start, right there. It's the place where you start, and everything else starts to come out of that. But for all of us, underneath Jesus' authority, we find healing and grace we find redemption and restoration as we follow him with our lives. His, he has authority to make us clean and restore and redeem us. Like the little girl, have Jesus restore your spiritual life so you can begin to love and live like a child. Re-enter the community of believers. Touch the edge of his robe. Or more importantly, understand that his robe has been extended over you. And you get to experience the life that he has always intended for you to live in. Jesus imparts his cleanness to us as a people. And so often we think that we've got to make ourselves clean before we go and, and get anywhere near Jesus. No, that's not how it works. Jesus comes and rescues us exactly where we are. We are a people who have lived lives just like this woman who's been in misery for 12 years, just like the little girl. We're dead. We, we have sin and sickness in our lives, and Jesus comes and restores us and places his wings, his kanath, around us and restores us. This is what communion is meant to remind us and be about. You break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we can be this people who live these restored lives, that our God has brought us back in, he has brought us to life, placed us into his body, and sends us out to live on mission under his great love and grace, because he is rescued, and he is redeemed, and he is saved. God has not left us in a place of brokenness. He does not intend for us to stay in a place of brokenness. Our God intends to restore us to who he meant for us to be. So let's be a people who begin to live under his kanaf, his wings, his prayer shawl, how he has come to rescue and call us and enfold us in to be his own. The band's going to come up. I'm both in the hallway there. You're lucky your third service because uh, the other services I went really long and they had to cut all their songs down. <laughs> but your third, so I'm going to see what Jason's going to do. <laughs> Guys, if you need prayer, there'll be people in the, in the hallway to pray with you. And if you have anything going on, they would love to place their hands on you. When you pray for somebody else and, and you put your hands on them, that's representative of God's hand on somebody else. We get to be representative of who God is to one another. And so if you need prayer for anything, they would love to pray with you. If you have something going on in your life and you just want God to come restore and heal, go pray with them. They would love to pray with you. 
And there's offering boxes inside of one on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week to give like God gave. There's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, meet some other people, maybe start talking through some sermon note questions, and begin to ask on those things. Where in your life do you need to be healed? Where in your life do you just feel you're struggling through certain things? But I think we also need to be honest enough to ask, where in our lives do we not want to be healed? Where do we want to stay where we are? Because we really don't want Jesus to take care of that. Because if he does, then our lives really have to change. Now think about all of those things. Where is God healing? Where does he want to bring healing? Where are you crying out for God to bring healing? And let people come around you and pray for you and lift you up so with the community of believers around you, God can heal. Because our God is good. Our God is good. And he has not left us in our broken state. He has come to rescue and redeem. And what you see throughout Matthew is the progression of how Jesus does this. To every situation and every place, he has brought healing and hope and restoration and redemption. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you, as our great God, would remind us, first and foremost, of your authority. And that we would rest in that. And as we understand your authority, you would give us eyes to see our own brokenness. the brokenness that you long to heal, that you long to reset us and restore us and rescue us. And I ask that you give us the strength to live in that restoration. Father, for people in this room this morning that when I talk about imperfect faith, their first reaction is, yes, that's me. I just have imperfect faith. And help us all to understand that our faith is typically imperfect. But the beauty is, is that you are a perfect God who steps into our imperfect faith and as the object of that faith can heal and restore us. So today, teach us and remind us how you have healed us and placed us back within your family to be a people in your body who love one another and most importantly love you. Have us understand your love of us by how we love you back. And that we would daily stand in awe of your goodness as you send us out in this world to be a people who lift you up in all things. So that the world would know that our great God is a God of rescue. And that you have brought us healing. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.